We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Hi guys, Pete and Rich here. We've got another Boys in the Band podcast episode coming up in a moment. But first, a quick shout out to our sponsors at Beer 52. Yeah, we may have fond memories of drinking pretty much anything on offer back at gigs back in the day, uh, but we're a bit more selective these days, and Beer 52 have a great collection. They come up with a great deal just for our listeners to the Boys in the Band podcast. Yeah, so if you fancy a free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52, go to beer52.com forward slash band, and all you have to do is cover the postage costs of five ninety five. That sounds like a good deal to me, Rich. Does indeed. And uh, not just that, as well as a free case, you'll also get signed up to Beer 52's Beer Club, the largest in the world with over 150,000 active members. Each month, members are sent a case with a different theme, as well as a magazine and a snack too. Uh, so you can, of course, pause or cancel the offer at any time, but it's well worth trying out. Yep, leave those bad beers you used to get gigs behind and get on this stuff and head over to beer52.com forward slash band for that offer. Yep, get on that, kick back, crack open a beer and enjoy the next pod. Hello, welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Peter Smith. And I'm Richard Gallagher. And on this week's show, we're joined by Ronnie Joyce, a member of Littlands and someone with some great stories of the naughty indie scene, having also DJed at various club nights around that time. Here's a little taster of some of that indie nostalgia with Ronnie reminiscing about Club Enemy at Camden's Coco. We'd arrive at Coco at, you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock. You'd be there till four and like just nothing else mattered. You know, and you'd all spill out to the streets at four and you'd all end up at a house party in Camden somewhere. And and for some of us, um, you know, we'd still be going the day after. And, and you know, it was, you know, you, you, you basically, you made your best friends there. You know, you, the formative years of your life were literally spent in that club. Um, and it was, yeah, just, it was an amazing place. And again, we're only on Friday. <laughs> Ah, oh, good times indeed. Yeah, it was good fun walking down memory lane, remembering some of those great club nights with Ronnie. Me, me and Rich, we enjoyed a few of them, didn't we? A few good memories from club nights all around London and, Did and everywhere else we ended up. <laughs> um, but as we said, uh, Ronnie was also part of Littlands and we chatted to him about that band as well. We do, of course, they had their big hit with Their Way with Pete Doherty. So plenty of stories about him and supporting Baby Shambles as well. Yeah, nice follow-on from our chat with Gary from the Libertines last week. If you haven't seen that one or heard that one, go and check it out. That was a good one. And this is a good one as well. So here comes Ronnie. And uh, remember, you can also check us out on social media. Leave a review if you like it. And uh, yeah, here comes the pod. Enjoy. On this week's show, we're joined by Ronnie Joyce from the Littlands. How's it going, Ronnie? Hello. Hi, yeah. Good to have you on the show, mate. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks a lot. We hear you've got some good stories to tell, so we're looking forward to that as well. Well, to get us warmed up, Ronnie, we're going to kick off with a sound check. So just a few questions to get us going. And the first one yeah. is, whereabouts are you? So I live in uh, West Sussex these days. I work in Brighton um, and I live near a little place called Arundel, which is kind of Harry Potter world, um, mm -hmm. big castles and cathedrals and amazing rivers and i've got a little dog called bentley who i kind of take everywhere with me and it's kind of our little stomping ground and then we're going to brighton and i mean i was pre-lockdown i was back and forth from uh from from london um couldn't really let it go but um mm -hmm. but these days yeah i'm very much a country bumpkin 
Nice. Yeah, very nice part of the world down there, definitely. Mm. Second question, Ronnie, is um, what are you listening to at the moment? What music are you into? Well, I'm just sat here at the moment with a uh, record by Idols. Cool. Oh, everyone's uh, favourite band right now, it seems, yeah. Um, on the train home today, I was listening to um, the new Dizzy record, the new Dizzy Rascal record. Yeah. It was, you know, like back in the indie days, like he was like, um, we had that Grindy scene, didn't we? You know, mm. kind of funny crossover between grime and indie. That um, DJ Static kind of was the, uh, you know, Static and Lethal Bizzle were kind of like the main guys of. Um, and it was quite interesting to kind of dizzy, like was like heroes to us, even though obviously he was completely a different scene. But I think maybe the fact he was from East London as well, and there was obviously a lot of East London crossover. But it was funny because a lot of indie kids wanted to be hip hop kids. Yeah. <laughs> they just like <laughs> were too skinny and and uh, <laughs> yeah, just didn't really like guns. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we um, yeah, so I, I mean, I've been listening to that, and then. Uh, in preparation for uh, later, I've been listening to a very special band close to my heart, which is The Walkman. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of, when it comes to listening to music, I kind of split it into two ways because I'm still lucky to DJ. There's obviously stuff that I listen to that I love playing out. And then there's obviously stuff that I just love listening to personally. So like Nick Drake, I've been listening to him loads this week. Um, probably not going to, you know, set any new pulses like racing for me to tell anyone that. Um, and then bands like the Maccabees, like, you know, just going back to those kind of like bands that just will always, will always like just hit the right spots and always like kind of make goosebumps stand up. Yeah. Some classic, yeah. Classic choices there. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> cool. Um, and Ronnie gigs, obviously distant memory at the moment, but were any good bands you saw last year or that you can remember so, Mac- I mean, I was, start this year? I was really lucky because well, basically so I put on a big beer festival in Arundel in January and we had the Mystery Jets headline. Oh, awesome. So the Jets came and played. I think it was their second to last gig of, of the year, like pre-lockdown. The last gig I saw was the Mystery Jets play in Camden. <laughs> they played Dr. Martin's gig. So I saw them twice this year. And then there's a great band called Cruel Hearts Club. Um, and I DJed for them at their single launch at the Lexington um, in February. I think that was maybe like a couple of days before or after Valentine's Day. Um, and... Uh, that was a great gig. I mean, they're they're a wicked band. They're like they remind me of um, like kind of they're just a proper punk rock girl band, and they're all sisters, the Langley sisters, um, and they've all been in like kind of the music industry for, for you know a couple of years, um, doing very cool stuff. And now they've obviously come together as a sisterhood, um, and they just fucking rock. They're brilliant. So that's possibly that was the second to last gig. And then the day that they announced lockdown was gonna start i know i think something happened in america but basically the whole world felt like it was about to burn <laughs> i've literally just woken up in a flat um in elephant castle kind of looking around going where the fuck am i um and i just seen just seen the jets in camden and that was like a big last hurrah like we all got completely hammered kind of to um you know because we thought right this is like, gonna be like the last well it kind of was the last time for months yeah. that we'd all be allowed out nice sign um, off yeah yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, we we put the right world to rights, definitely. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so hopefully we'll get back to that at some point. And uh, the, the first night out is going to be pretty, pretty major, I reckon, when we finally get gigs back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of worry, yeah, how, how kind of crazy it's going to be. It's like, I think I might stand at the back of the room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> observe. <laughs> um, let's talk about Littlands then, Ronnie. So uh, most of our listeners that are familiar with them will remember... Uh, the, the big single "Their Way" from 2005, which of course featured Pete Doherty. You know, great, great tune for for you guys. 
Um, and you, you spent a lot of time with Pete and Baby Shambles. So how did your, your paths cross? How did, that, how did you get involved? Well, it's kind of a kind of crazy story, as most stories from that time were. Um, but I was, um, I wanted to be a scriptwriter. Like I wanted to um, go and write comedy and, and write sitcoms and, and go to university and learn how to do that. Um, you know, make kind of weird avant-garde films as you know, you do at 18. Um, and I was quite fluent basically posting on the libertines.org and the, the others forums and the block party forums and basically any forum I could. I mean, I used to post on a forum about the office. That's how much I loved internet <laughs> forums. Um, and you would just share music and, and, you know, you basically, it was a bit of a community with the, with the London based ones, you know, with the others and, and with, with the Libertines and you just make a couple of friends and then you realize it was quite a lot of kind of people who were your age, who were coming from kind of satellite towns as well. And we started to come into London and go to gigs and, and the whole kind of big thing with the others with Dominic Masters was that you could, um, you could basically come to the gigs and they'd always make sure you got home safe. Um, now, when they say get home safe, that usually means going to a party until six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> staying up, sitting around watching adults do things that perhaps you shouldn't have been seen at 17. And then you go in to, on, the, on the first train back home and your mum looking at you going, Are you all right? Have you been to bed? You know, and you're going, I'm great, mum. Don't worry about it. I'm probably stone cold sober. But at the same time, you know, like your eyes, you know, definitely your innocence being peeled away. Um, and, you know, the Libertines, obviously, Pete was, you know, did his secret gigs, you know, in his flats and stuff like that. So, obviously, they were, you know, I mean, I remember Pete played in Worthing, which is basically near my hometown. And I remember being kind of mad that I couldn't get, I couldn't get in because I was 17. And then you went to London. And, like, if you were 17, you were, like, one of the oldest people there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, so I kind of found that kind of crazy. And um, I had met a guy called Andrew Avelyn, who was living with Pete a few years before. And he was in a band called The White Sport. And The White Sport had band members Pat and Adam, who were later in Baby Shambles. And they recorded this song together, their way, which I think was part kind of apology for stealing, stealing his band members. And just part because Andrew's just got this you know, amazing knack for a melody. Um, and they'd written that together. And I had met Andrew. And I basically also met the manager, Josh, who coincidentally lived in Brighton which is where I was going to indie nights all the time and ended up on tour with them basically the first night that we ever played any kind of gig together was a pub called the Duke of Clarence which is basically in Islington and was I don't know if you ever went to the Duke yeah, it yeah, was yeah, like yeah. this illegal kind of well it was completely illegal it was a legal like unlicensed pub where you had like crack and smackers living upstairs you had like Kate Moss and Bobby Gillespie running around the bar. You know, you like you had this amazing guy, Ty Ogidan, who's like this absolutely bonkers African bloke who basically had no idea about, you know, like the scene itself, but just loved the kind of, you know, just the, the vivaciousness of it all. And he would be behind the bar, just, you know, pouring drinks and <laughs> you didn't have any money. He'd still pour you a drink and he'd, he'd give you like 50 quid and say, right, can you run down to the cash and carry and go and get me a bit more booze? You know, you'd come back with like, you know, 10 quid's worth of booze and 40 quid in your pocket kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, um, and basically Andrew was asked to play a gig with Pete that night and, um, and Kate Moss was going to perform as well. And it was all like, you know, the whole pub was rammed and it was, it was, we basically got on stage. Andrew had said to me, um, do you know the words to all the songs? And I said, yeah, Josh has sent them to me. So I've been listening to, you know, listening to them uh, religiously. And he said, well, look, um, I'm a bit nervous about going on stage tonight. Do you think you can come up and sing with me? 
And I was just like 17, 18. So at that age, you just go, yeah, fuck it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'll just go up and play and whatever, you know. You, you know, you don't even imagine the fact that, you know, like some of your like rock and roll heroes are in attendance or, you know, like the fact that you're performing in an unlicensed pub and, you know, and um, you, you just get up and basically the, the microphone was two microphones gaffer taped together. Um, I don't know where the sound was coming out of. I think probably coming out of a bin. Right. And it was just the whole thing was just, you know, completely ramshackle. And we got up on stage and it was a fucking, it was atrocious. It, you know, I mean, who knows if there's, I think there is some video footage. A guy called Texas Bob, I think, has some video footage of it. And I've never asked to see it <laughs> <laughs> because I just know that it must be horrendous. And then um, we basically played this gig and I went down to the basement. Um, well, who knows why? And um, I. Uh, <laughs> I basically looked up and the police were there <laughs> and the police had raided the whole pub. Um, obviously got wind of the fact that it was an illegal pub, got wind of the fact that it were like, you know, all these like 17, 18 year old kids running around the place, got wind of the fact that, you know, very famous drug addict Pete Doherty was there um, and cleared the place out and, and raided the place. And we all spilled out onto the street. And the next thing I know is um, Pete and Andrew are singing their way together, running down the street. And I'm the only person that's really probably heard it in terms of, you know, the kids in, in the audience. So I'm, there is a scene in the video where I'm actually singing with Pete and kind of singing the words with him uh, with a bottle of beer in my hand. And I remember my mum seeing that on MTV too and going, well, what? I didn't know you started drinking. Do you know I mean? Right. And um, we, uh, yeah, basically, so we, we kind of, we had that evening and that night, and that crazy night, and that was all filmed and that ended up becoming the music video for Their Way. Um, and then... A few days later, I get a, a kind of call from Andrew and he says, well, we're going to play in Sheffield. You, you know, do you want to come up to Sheffield? You know, we're, we're on tour of Baby Shambles. And, you know, like admittedly, Baby Shambles is one of my all time favourite bands, you know, like, especially at that age. You know, and, um, you know, you can't help but hero worship people like Pete Doherty when you're 17, you know, in terms of the poetry and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the way he was then. He, was, he seemed like a beautiful, tortured soul, um, you know, and really related to that. And so I am... Um, yeah, I jumped in a split van and I went up to Sheffield and in Sheffield, it wasn't like I was joining the band. It wasn't like I was there to be in the band or, or for any other reason, just to go as, as a kind of hanger on. Um, and we're just backstage and I kind of was just playing with this tambourine, just kind of rattling it around, you know, probably picking it up going, what does this do? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> probably the first time I've ever picked up a tambourine in my life. Do you know what I mean? Because like, I'm, I'm not musical. Like I say, like my background was, was writing, was all about words and comedy and and... And, and that expression. And um, <laughs> yeah, basically, Andrew said, why don't you come on during the gig? Why don't you come on stage and, and start playing the tambourine during the gig? And I, I mean, I, I probably, if I'm being honest with you, probably went, yes, like, <laughs> absolutely, yes. But for the sake of humility for the story, <laughs> like, no, 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 of course not. Uh, but um, I remember the rest of the band being quite peeved because they were a bit like, well, no, this is our like first big gig and we're playing, you know, Two, three thousand people at Sheffield University, and who the fuck is this guy who's just shown up? You know, Andrew's new like BFF, and he's just a kid. And um, they basically they, they played half the set, and I remember there was I can't remember what song it was. I think it was called "Did You Hide from Saturday Night" that I came on stage to, and it has this lovely kind of jingly jangly kind of you know indie intro. And I kind of I just kind of wandered on stage, a little bit like um, like I. 
almost like a Sasha Baron Cohen character. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're almost like, you know, when Borat ends up on stage and doesn't really know where he's meant to be. Like, Mr. Bean comes looking around and it's like, you know Mr. Bean um, in the Olympic ceremony? You know, when <laughs> yeah, he comes yeah, on yeah. and he's like wandering around the place going, what the, f- where am I? And then all of a sudden the lights come on him and he, and he starts playing this concerto. It was a bit like that where suddenly I kind of wandered on stage and I realised, oh my God, this is here for the taking. And just started dancing my little cotton socks off, basically, with the tambourine just jumping around the place basically and I didn't hear the drummer Ben say everyone put your hands up for Ronnie right <laughs> so all I started to hear was Ronnie 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 and I was like what the fuck is going on this is mental like thinking like this is like Beatles about or something do you know what I mean right <laughs> and <laughs> and obviously stayed on stage I mean the song finished I remember Andrew saying stay on stay on stay on right and Andrew was like a kind of big brother kind of figure to me. So he, you know, I was just like, yeah, of course, sure, yeah. You know, we finished the gig and, you know, played to, you know, two, three thousand people at Sheffield um, University and then get off stage. And now, obviously, I'm buzzing. And Andrew's kind of, you know, Andrew's, and Andrew's obviously a big fan of what I've been doing, but the rest of the band really weren't happy. And the manager, Josh, who was my friend, he was a bit like, okay, that was, that was fun, Ron, but that's not going to happen again now. You know, kind of, you know, this is it. And I just remember Andrew being really defensive and saying, no, Ronnie, do you want to be in the band? Do you want to be in Litmans? Me going, yeah, all right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I'm meant to be at uni tomorrow morning, but I suppose I can cancel, right? And, um, you know, I actually never took any of my stuff away from halls. Like, I literally, I never went back. Like, literally from that <laughs> night onwards, I never went back to my halls of residence. So there's a, there's a PlayStation portable in someone's someone else's possession these days. And I think, what else did I buy on my student loan? I think I bought a dodgy guitar from Argos because I think I was going to teach myself to play guitar, um, you know, and probably a load of, you know, weird clothes. Uh, and the rest of the tour, um, I, yeah, I ended up in the band, basically. You know, as, as time went on, I ended up becoming part of Litland. And obviously, because the, the audience reaction to me was obviously so warm, Andrew saw me as kind of a pivotal part of the band. Like a best character. Absolutely, I'm nearly dead. <laughs> I mean, like, there's, like, you know, I'm 33 now, so I can say that. I mean, maybe at the time, being called Bez was, or you know, Bez character was, <laughs> would have been seen as derogatory. But, um, but now, I, you know, it's like, you know, I'm very lucky in the stories and, and experiences that I can tell, especially as an 18 year old. I mean, I'd never been abroad. I don't think I'd even left the southeast before. Do you know what I mean? And you know, I was at university, and I came back to uni. Um, after we played at Brixton Academy, so it was the end of the tour, and people were recognising me, you know, saying, oh, you're Ronnie from Littlands, or you played the baby shambles the other night, do you know what I mean? And obviously my ego in my head was like, fucking, you know, I'm surprised I even fitted through the fucking doors of the university. But it was, you know, but I was like, well, I'm not going back to this, you know, I'm not going back to this life, you know, you know I'm a rock and roll star now, you know, and um I mean, it's funny, actually, because tam- in terms of the tambourines, I would lose a tambourine per gig. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even like, you know, I was cheap on the road, you know. You know, not only did they have an extra person now, they're having to, put, you know, pop in hotels and pay for meals and booze and stuff, but I would lose a tambourine per night. And <laughs> uh, wake up with the biggest bruises on my legs and my arms, because I used to hit it everywhere. Like, it was all over the place, like, you know, literally. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and that's, 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 the, that's the very, very beginning of... of, of kind of how we ended up how I ended up in a band and ended up kind of catapulting myself kind of headfirst into this London indie scene yeah absolutely I remember that um that video for that there way it's interesting to hear your story about how it came about how it came to be filmed because 
I used to watch that basically on loop at, at uni. I just love oh, wow. that song. And also it was just, just such a cool video really of, but it just sums it up. Didn't it? people following Pete Doherty basically through the streets? It just like, it just I, 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 was a nice, uh, exactly yeah. a nice metaphor for his following really. But, um, to then go on tour with, tour with baby shambles, you must have some fantastic stories from, uh, from playing with them. I do. I mean, the tour, I mean, so, I mean, we probably played maybe all together, including the other band that was in No Picasso. I think we probably played maybe 40 gigs all together with them. And at the height of the Baby Shambles tour, the first one, which is kind of, you know, the main one to kind of focus on, um, he had just broken up with Kate Moss and it was obviously the big story in the, in the paper was her doing drugs and she just lost all of her, con- like, you know, her contracts and, you know, and he was on the front page of every single tabloid and, you know, and he was painted out to be, you know, like, you know, the devil and she was painted out to be the devil. And it was like, you know, this whole, you know, this, this you know, sold, sold. it was almost at the end of the way that papers could sell copies. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, before the digital age now where, you know, the Daily Mail, it's all about, the, you know, Daily Mail as you know, what's it called? Side, side, sidebar of shame. Um, now, um, looking back, it, you know, I, I was I was in the eye of the storm in the sense that we were playing gigs and people were, you know, we'd come to soundcheck. People would be outside the venue from 12, one o'clock to get a glimpse of Pete. They were, you know, everyone was hoping to see Kate, you know, everyone thought Kate Moss would be there. And, and she was never on the tours with us because they separated by that point. Um, but there was one point where we played in Shrewsbury, which was a crazy, again, as an 18 year old, it should be a warning sign that I'm not in a great, like kind of lifestyle so we um we played shrewsbury which is i don't know if anyone listeners ever been to shrewsbury but it's like a little market town where there is fuck all going on right but it's a nice place do you know what I mean it's like it's not the type of place that you have famous drug addicts performing um <laughs> and certainly not like a place where kids are kind of like coming out like little rats you know like almost like just going around trying to get hold you know trying to get some kind of connection with him and me and andrew walked into town and i had a I think I'd had to go into town to buy another tambourine. <laughs> I, think, um, I think we were going to a music shop and we bought this tambourine and Andrew had his guitar with him. I think he was buying some new guitar strings. And we kind of, we kind of, we just kind of sat on the pavement, just kind of, you know, just kind of keeping our distance from, from um, the sound checks probably because we were quite bad at doing those. Um, and um, we, uh, we basically started to just kind of build up this little following of kids. These kids just kind of started following us around town. <laughs> <laughs> and they must have been this, like the same age as me but it was just mad just kind of like walking around and there's these kids you know these kids are basically following us around and and we started playing this song called alleyways which is basically just like alleyways did it did it and it was just andrew like doing this really simple like melody and then me just like ba- you know bashing a tambourine for you know out of tune and, and these kids were just singing along with us going alleyways <laughs> and me just thinking fucking hell man like this is unreal like this you know what i mean like this is this is ridiculous and then we played in Manchester the night before and we'd had a massive night, basically like a huge, huge night. Um, and we were all pretty broken, right? Which I think is why we were out the venue because I think we were like so hungover that we just, we wanted some fresh air and just needed to get out and about. So we kind of got back to the venue and Pete and Pat are in our dressing room and they're playing Smith songs, right? Which again is like, fuck me, do you mean the Smiths, Pete Doherty, you know, it's like, you know, it just, again just like teenage me going wow this is this is amazing and then the next thing kind of knows that we played a gig and andrew's like look we're going back to london you know this is this is this is you know we've got tomorrow off let's just go back and cut our losses and we're in basically we're in the splitter van 
on the way back to London. And we must have only been five minutes outside the venue. And all of a sudden, fucking the van just goes like off the side of the road. And I'd been reading this book about um, highwaymen, right? <laughs> and highwaymen obviously like used to basically like, you know, could tell people off the road and then try and rob them. So I thought we were getting done up by highwaymen <laughs> in the year 2005. <laughs> right? You know, like we'd always gone through some like time, time trumpet where like suddenly, so it's 2005. I think we're getting done by highwaymen. We're not, it's SAS police who basically like in all black, like literally they ram like they say rammed our van off onto the road. They then ram our door open. Right. And then the next thing I know, they were like, put your hands up, put your hands up. We're all in handcuffs. We're all getting dragged out of the, you know, and at no point during that episode did I feel scared or feel like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just felt like I was part of this magical craziness that this is what it's like to be <laughs> in a band is that you get pulled over and you get, I don't know how many other bands you've spoken to on this podcast that have stories where one of the first kind of things that happened to them in their career was being pulled over by SAS police. <laughs> no, I think that's a first. And taken to, you know, taken to a police station in Shrewsbury where the rest of Baby Shambles were then sat. And here we'd met properly the night before in Manchester. So we kind of knew them and kind of, you know, because on tour, you don't necessarily hang out. Like it's not necessarily, as much as it, people have this kind of romanticism that bands go on tour and they, you know, best mates and blah, blah, blah. You know, bands that, um, certain level they want to be left to their own devices so we end up um we end up with uh, adam and drew and pat and mick who was the guitar tech at the time and this guy johnny headlop who was pete's minder and and we're all sat in this um police cell you know and basically all getting strip searched and taken you know one by one into a, into a cell and stripped of our clothes and you know the rubber glove treatment and it's fucking weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's mad. And they've taken Pete to Norwich Police Station because, and the weirdest thing about all of it is that no one had any drugs on them whatsoever, <laughs> which is kind of weird considering the band was Baby Shambles. <laughs> it, it was very surreal, but then it kind of made me realise that actually this whole world, this whole indie scene was a little bit cleverer than I realised. And obviously they must have been tipped off and they must have had someone tell them in advance. I mean, we actually had a lawyer arrested with us so they actually took a lawyer around with them around the country with the foresight that he was going to be arrested so we had this lawyer who basically got us off i mean we didn't have any drugs on us anyway but he got us out of there as quickly as possible and the police were blushing when we left you know like they were almost asking for autographs because they felt so embarrassed <laughs> uh so yeah i mean it's you know and and those kind of stories really and they go hand in hand with pete really i mean i'm sure you've read lots of interviews with him and seen videos and, and heard stories and it's like the guy just seems to just like chaos just knocks on his door constantly um and you know if you're if you're within one degree of separation from him you're going to get you're going to get dragged into that hurricane of madness really um and for that tour especially it was uh, you know utterly bonkers utterly bonkers yeah it sounds absolutely crazy so you, you had that sort of time period uh, touring with them a fair bit and you know, they were obviously a pretty mainstream band at that time you know fair bit of success but there were loads of bands around at that time part of the scene who were really working hard just to make ends meet and i suppose Littlands would sort of fall into into that category wouldn't they absolutely yeah i mean we were a band you know completely a squalor i mean we so like i said like, i mean i had my student loan so i think i had about a couple of grand blue at coco every friday and frog every saturday <laughs> you know? i remember you had to spend a minimum of 
I think it was like 10 pounds minimum at the bar. So I used to always have to buy doubles. Um, or we'd always have to buy doubles and then buy someone else a drink or something to use my card so it meant every single time I went to the bar I spent £10 because it's student loan money it doesn't really I mean now I realise it's not for free money (laughs) 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 when I look at my my, my pay slips and realise actually um, that that I'm being charged for it um, at some great interest but you know in generally you're um, you know you just think it's free money and Andrew himself Andrew lived with Jarvis Cocker for 10 years before He'd live with Pete and he lived with Jarvis before Pulp hit the big time. So Andrew's a bit like Forrest Gump where he's kind of <laughs> always been in the right place at the right time with these like indie heroes of like the nineties and the noughties and God knows who he knows next. Who's he living with Billy Eilish's best mate now. So he's mean, living with her. Um, he's got nine lives, Andrew. He's, you know, he's a very fascinating, brilliant character. Um, and I am, um, Around that time, obviously, indie was became very, you know, very cool and very fashionable. So there was a lot of fashion parties. There were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of free booze going around in that scene as well. It kind of went hand in hand. A lot of brands wanted to jump on this bandwagon, really. I remember the Paddingtons were did a bit of modelling as well. And obviously, Pete did as well. Um, skinny jeans, Converse, looking a bit dishevelled. That, uh, that was the look at the time, right? I mean, we were really lucky because basically, so we were like, in terms of talking about having no money and bit, like, kind of living in squalor, uh, we actually, uh, we got a, a review in this magazine called The V Magazine. And I think that, that was what we were called. We were called Troubled Kids, Troubled Kids Running From The Law, <laughs> exploding gas canisters um, on the police. And yeah, they said that basically romance often exists in squalor, was a quote about us, in the sense that we were living this romantic ideal of being in an indie scene, you know, kind of living this rock and roll life. But realistically, you know, the soles of our shoes were falling off. You know, we were having to use safety pins to, you know, to attach, um, you know, like our belts, your belt buckles together and stuff. And then we played the show at the 100 Club. Um, so we did. So after the Baby Shambles tour, we got given our own enemy tour, uh, like a club enemy tour. So we played all the club enemies across the country, which was a total, like, total farce because we were just so unorganised. And I mean, we were basically, we were, I think we were in like a, we were in a, a car driving up to gigs like two hours before sound check and I remember like we got to Newcastle like an hour after sound check and I mean you know just you know we were basically borrowing our way through the tour and we got to London we played in the 100 club um which was you know an amazing experience to play you know such a famous venue and we get there and Adam from Baby Shambles is drumming for us because our drummers quit mid-tour because he just can't he just you know like he's just like well I'm not living this lifestyle of you know basically sleeping on the back of a car you know, basically, you know, having like, you know, not even having any foods, you know, or, you know, all that kind of stuff that at my age, at 18, 19, I didn't really mind so much. Um, but, you know, you're a little bit older, you kind of, you know, you start to have priorities. And um, we played the gig at 100 Club and there was a guy taking photos of us in the crowd who seemed to have a liking to me um, with his camera. And I, you know, I, at the time, you know, this was our, this was our tour and I was kind of used to everybody kind of being the focal point of me. I mean, I was, you know, you say the bears. So, you know, I was the, you know, I was the performer and I, the whole point of me performing was for people to watch me and to dance along with me. And, you know, if you weren't dancing, you were watching, do you know what I mean? And this was before camera phones. So people, you know, really had nothing else to look at, but me or, you know, go to the bar. Uh, and, um, it turned out to be Hedy Slimane, who is the guy that you, you know, that, 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 that entire skinny jean look that became so chic was his invention. 
you know like you know the suits and, and the skinny ties and you know looking gaunt and looking like you hadn't had a meal in a week you know and the Paddingtons and, and Pete were big you know he was big fans of those guys you know like it was Hedy Slimane and Mario Testino really who were like the big guys who really really loved it um, and Hedy became a massive fan of Littlelands and it gave us a new lease like basically it gave us a new lease of exposure and a new um, revenue fund as well because we now had a new income stream to be able to afford to basically to, to live and fashion brands would pay through the nose and stupid amounts of money to basically have us perform at these galas and events and you know we played places like the National Portrait Gallery and you know some really you know like some really prestigious places that I don't think I've even been to never mind played gigs at uh, because of the Hedy Slimane connection, because, you know, we were Dior Homs band. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of bands dined out on that. A lot of bands survived on that, really. It was very important, but kind of bastardised us at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you had, as we said, you had to make ends meet somehow. And I think uh, those those fashion brands and how, however you could uh, get, get that income, you know, you, you had to get that, didn't you, to, to stay afloat and to keep going. Um, but... I've... Sorry, I was just going to say, it was just, I feel like it was a little bit of a double-edged sword for us because we may, if we'd been a bit more organised, may have been able to get a record deal, you know, because obviously everyone was getting record deals left, right and centre back then. As soon as we kind of got tarned with the fashion, kind of fashion world brush, labels weren't interested in us, agents weren't interested in us. You know, the only people who were interested in us were fashion PR people. Um, so it was a double-edged sword. And really, you know, we were, we were getting gigs in Europe through Pete and the connection through Baby Shambles and Libertines. But really, in the UK, we couldn't get any gigs. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, we, and we were losing the fan base because we didn't have any PR or any machine behind us to kind of push us to... So the only gigs we were getting were the fashion gigs. And it does become quite a vacuous kind of existence when your only gigs you're kind of playing are places where people are pissed on free champagne. Yeah, not, not, not quite the same as, uh, as some of the gigs you mentioned earlier, is it? Yeah. Um. Like, you know, <laughs> well, the spirit kind of falls out of his arse, yeah. Yeah. All right, great stuff, Ronnie. We'll take a quick breather there, but in part two, we'll chat more to Ronnie about his other memories of the indie scene. Hello, I'm Ronnie Joyce, and I was in a band called Littlelands, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, Check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're chatting to Ronnie from Littlands. Ronnie, we've spoken Hello. about gig stories from back in those days, uh, but club nights were also a huge part of the scene. We know you've done uh, a lot of DJing as well and a lot of attending of those club nights. So uh, tell us your sort of uh, take on that that scene at that time so the indie scene in london was amazing uh back in back in the kind of heyday you know there was just so many club nights there was so much going on i think it was just before kind of the threat of music venues kind of became quite apparent um it was just a lot of empty buildings that were kind of being transformed into music venues um you know the wave of guitar music was huge and you know there was just a lot a lot of people in bands um you know, and it didn't seem to have a negative in terms of, you know, guitar music didn't seem to have some, any negativity in the same way. Perhaps new scenes in today's world may have problems kind of starting up because of any negative connotations about them. You know, we were pretty vanilla and 
didn't really cause very much trouble um, in the sense that you kind of, you would just have these club nights of indie, you know, it was like student nights. They were almost glorified student nights that just seemed to have lots of people from bands that went to as well. Um, and I can, I'll, I'll take you through like a, a, like a usual week for me. <laughs> right? It was a day by day um, account. So like, so Monday, like I said, would be trash. Um, so trash, which was like, so Daft Punk played their first, like when their first gigs over here and, liars and justice and like Ariel Alkin was the the dj and promoter there and it was an amazing place and again it was like two pound a beer you know like the, so that was basically like the underlying thing about one of the reasons why the indie club scene was so big was because the booze was so fucking cheap like beer i'm sure you lads remember like yeah. you could go out with 20 quid yeah. and get hammered and still have enough for mcdonald's <laughs> well, definitely at the indie clubs, but I remember, do you remember Cheapskates in Soho? That was a place yeah, where you could yeah. go and get like vodka for just like under a pound, quid. basically. Get a vodka. I mean, ridiculous. I mean, that's the thing. So like cheese days would be white heat or panic. So white heat, you had bands on, um, you know, and they had some amazing bands that played there, like Neil's Children and Vincent, Vincent, the villains and the horrors played there early on and yeah, yeah, yeahs. And, you know, like some really amazing bands. Um, and then you had the club night afterwards. Or you had Panic, which was like just pure, like, you know, the kooks and, you know, just that kind of, I suppose, as, I mean, I don't really agree with the term landfill windy, but I suppose that's what you would hear um, at these club nights. And, you know, again, it was, I think it was £3 for two beers and then £8 for these jugs of cocktails. And like, if you, and the thing is, people would order a jug themselves. So it wasn't like you would get a sharing jug. There'd be glass <laughs> all over the floor. Like, and you'd be wearing like your like crap cheap like winkle pickers from office that had like rubber soles that the alcohol just literally just soaked up. You used to like leave, like you used to leave panic and you'd have holes in your shoes because the alcohol would literally burn holes through like, the, like, your, like your cheap soles. And then, you know, this all sounds like Arctic Monkeys B-sides, right? And then you basically, um, you, you know, you go, you, you, you drink these massive jumps and you just re- wouldn't remember the rest of the night. It didn't really matter. You know, you'd probably snog a thousand people, you know, and just run around the place. And it was just, and then you got to Wednesday, which was cheapskates, which was like the zenith of, of cheap booze, really, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, incredible place. How did it get? I don't know. I don't know how it was legal. I don't it was, know how it was mirrors all around the walls as well, wasn't it? And, you, and by a few hours in, it was just so hot in there and sweat was just running down these mirrors and people were fighting over each other to get to the bar to, yeah, get yeah. vodka for like 60p and it was just like it's yeah. absolute carnage in there i mean it's just it was, i mean i don't remember any nights at cheapskates <laughs> like i can't tell you a single night that I, I mean i know i went there yeah i don't have any recollection of any stories i think i can just about just about remember getting the night bus home once <laughs> <laughs> and that might have been at like 5am and i think the club shut at three so yeah um yeah, I mean, it's just, but the thing is, all your best mates went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, all your best mates were, were your age or, you know, and I think Cheapskates was the, actually the only place you never really saw any indie band members because they used to ID you on the door. So right. it's like the only place, because like, you don't, if you're in a band, you haven't got any ID, have you? That involves some kind of preparation or, you know. Um, so I remember, yeah, Cheapskates being quite, you know, just being, crazy and almost like the epitome of the indie you know like that you know that skinny jeans and, and waistcoats and polka dot dresses and big hair and hairspray and all you know every single person dressed up 
yeah, to go and get yeah. annihilated. It was like a <laughs> mum drunk wedding in there. Really crazy. Um, and then, I mean, the bad thing is this is Wednesday and I'm still going. Right? So fine. And then we get to Thursday. And Thursday, for me, my favourite night was Smash and Grab, um, which was run by the Queens of Noise. Um, you know, and you might go to a gig first and then go and watch, uh, go to Smash and Grab. There was Proud Galleries in Camden as well, if you ever went there. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, you know, you had the Holy Arms and the Lock Tavern and all those kind of, you know, I mean, you had the Nambuka. You know, Nambuka obviously was, you know, a massive part of my indie kind of legacy in terms of what, you know, like in terms of the, the places I remember going to, Nambuka, you know, I would always go to Nambuka no matter where I'd been that night. I would always end up in Nambuka. Um, you just would knock on the window basically and they would be, they'd be knocking every night because all the boys lived upstairs so all the frog boys yeah, you know, yeah. Kid Harpoon and the Holloways and Jay from Beans on Toast and you know like you know and, you know, all these indie heroes would live upstairs and you know you, they would all be downstairs in the pub drinking and you know and you know you would just knock on the window so you kind of get to Thursday and you would think that I would I mean look, one night a week for me would do me now but, um, <laughs> And even in lockdown, even just one night a month. But um, but you get to Friday, and Friday and Saturday were like the big nights of the week. And they were the nights you kind of got to meet some of your heroes. And it's probably the first time I ever met Amy Winehouse was at Coco. Um, and that's Club Enemy. And Club Enemy was amazing because it was a feeder for the Enemy magazine. So the Enemy basically would have two options. They would either bring in massive bands and say, right, okay, you know, this is your week of your new album. Come and play Club Enemy. You know, you're literally going to perform to... 1500 indie kids who are going to eat up your record eat you up and you know help help your sales position or if you were like a really kind of hot buzzy on the way band they'd say well come and perform for us first have you know your first gig whatever so every friday i mean you must have went to club and me both of you oh yeah absolutely it was like a religion wasn't it yeah (laughs) yeah and and you 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 would be there and 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 again, like I said, this whole guest list and kind of blagging thing is that you'd end up on the balcony, which was like the kind of the VIP, you know, and you hang out with like Carl Barat and, and Gary from the Libertines. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you know, you'd be chatting to Amy Winehouse or you'd be, you know, talking to, you know, whoever. And, and then if American bands were in town, you know, you'd end up meeting such and such and you're just like, fucking hell. But you're all in such a small little, little, <laughs> little space that you're all best mates when the night, you know, and... Yeah, I mean, we used to uh, we used to yeah, race up the stairs to get up to that top bar, where you yeah, all right up to the top, and you can get some drinks in there, grab a table, and get you know get get the drinks in, and as yeah. as the night wore on, you sort of yeah work your way down the various yeah. tiers of Coco until you get down at the bottom on the dance floor. And, it was uh, like a fun day, wasn't it? It was like, yeah. almost like, a, like, it was like a hard work, hard work walking up and down all those stairs, mate. Oh, tell me about it now. We're going back now, like 33. It's like, fucking hell, where's the stair lift? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, back then, and it was it was a playground, you know, and I mean, mm. me, it's, you know, me at that age, you know, I was, you know, just a little scamp. So I would just run around the place, left, right and centre and... You know, and, and again, there was always beers behind the frog bar. You know, you can always grab a you know a can of red light if someone wasn't looking, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so, and the music, obviously, the DJs as well. This guy Jeff Automatic, who I think um, he plays to the Reading Festival and stuff. Jeff would just play like just all the bangers, you know. And there were just certain songs like you know, Mr. Brightside. Obviously, everyone would go fucking bananas for. 
uh, which is probably my most hated song in the world. <laughs> um, it's like my cue to leave if I hear that song. Um, obviously, the Walkman, the Rat. I mean, like that was like that was for me like that song just like epitomised what the like the indie scene that um, you know. And then you yeah, you obviously can't stand me now. You know that was like a massive you know grab your mates and you know you know and sing together and pretend to be Pete and Carl's you know not you know and it's just that yeah that whole. That, that whole time it's just you know just look back so fondly because we were all just so happy and young and just like you know like you would just you would arrive at coco at, you know 9 30 10 o'clock you'd be there till four and like just nothing else mattered you know and you'd all spill out to the streets at four and you'd all end up at a house party in camden somewhere and and for some of us um you know we'd still be going the day after and and you know it was, you know, you, you, you basically, you made your best friends there, you know, you, the formative years of your life were literally spent in that club. Um, and it was, yeah, just, it was an amazing place. And again, we're only on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on to frog on Saturday, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Now you're speaking my religion. Completely. <laughs> I mean, frog again was amazing because I mean, I saw the Arctic monkeys there. I saw a block party there. I saw, you know, like, you know, the cribs there. I saw like just the most amazing bands Franz Ferdinand just played there on a Saturday and it was like, you know, free, I think it was free to get them a flyer and yeah. the, the booze was cheap and they would play at like nine or 10 o'clock at night. So you'd kind of not be drunk enough to remember them. Uh, and you would just, you know, and I just remember just being in the front row, just crowd surfing to all these amazing bands. And then you'd have the club night afterwards and you'd meet your, everyone that you met was going to be your future wife. You know, just like, you know, everyone <laughs> was just, everyone just went absolutely crazy for it um and and again like just the djs i mean the best thing about the djs was like tom who dj just couldn't fucking dj <laughs> so like so you know like every now and again you'd have like the house lights would come up by accident because you pressed the wrong button <laughs> so, or you'd hear like you'd hear like dizzy rascal like fix up look sharp three times in a row because he was too pissed and forgot he played in the time you know and and it was you know it just again just fucking brilliant times um and and that's really why i loved being an indie kid you know as much as the little and stuff obviously was like great to pepper my ego and obviously to give a foot, a foot into the door but <laughs> in terms of being an indie kid for me that's what i look back on most fond about because the groups of people it was just such a special moment in time that i can't really see happening anywhere else at the moment Do you know what i mean like i'm sure it does happen i'm sure there's subcultures but it just felt like our subculture was the last of the Mohicans and we were just like you know the last really special group of young people who rallied together and supported each other and were there for each other and there was no politics and there was no bullshit and it wasn't dark and it wasn't you know it was just it was just fun and everybody like literally just let loose for as long as they fucking could all week you know and made you know obviously there was people older than us who could afford to go every night but most of us were like you know 18 19 living on a shoestring and fuck me, did we stretch that shoestring as long as we could? <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Time. I mean, if you're uh, if you're after more stories like this, you can rewind back for our library because we did did a nice pod with Jay from, or AKA Beans on Toast, um, who, as we said earlier, run that frog nightclub with Tom, didn't he? And also, obviously, heavily involved in Nambu because he he had some really good stories yeah. as well about some yeah, wild nights at those two venues. Really, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, great guy. Nice. And obviously, great musician as well. Thanks, but Ronnie, you've got a, quite a few of these uh, these tales on your Instagram page as well, haven't you? Yeah, man. I mean, do you know what? It's funny. I've kind of got a little boys in the band exclusive for all you <laughs> listeners <laughs> out there. Um, uh, and it's actually, yeah, it's kind of funny because obviously you kind of, you know, I've been racking my brains about the indie kind of, you know, the indie worlds and just kind of thinking about what's the most unique story that I kind of have. We've all got, you know, rock and roll stories and, you know, kind of, you know, whatever. 
But um, so basically, I, I obviously Littlands is obviously the band we've been speaking about um, all you know for this podcast. But well, I kind of when I left Littlands was because I got really ill living in New York and I, I got meningitis and it was all quite serious and um, kind of flew back and the band it was just you know kind of came to a natural end. And obviously, as, as you know, I was playing tambourine and was didn't really have much creative input to the band beyond the performance element. So I kind of fancied doing it myself. Um, and I'd been influenced by bands like Selfish Cunt and Twisted Charm and um, uh, X16s and, and The Fall and bands like that. And I started this band called No Picasso, which was basically like a rebel without a cause band where I was just a bit of a bit of a kind of punk, but not really. Do you know what I mean? Like just kind of, I mean, crack wasn't sexy anymore. So kind of, we kind of, you know, trying to get away from that kind of baby shambles bandwagon. And um we, we were kind of at this point we were unsigned and we were just kind of starting out again you know kind of doing the toilet venues and, and what have you and I think we supported Dirty Pretty Things on a, on a tour and you know kind of you know a few little blags here and there but you know almost went to the dark side from Pete to Carl um, but um, I basically when I was a kid I used to love Big Brother like absolutely loved Big Brother like I even went to a live eviction and ended up on camera talking to Davina like and she was like interviewing me about who my favourite person was yeah. Um, and even, I don't know if you remember a guy called John Tickle, who was on there. Like, John Tickle was yeah, on yeah, Big I Brother. Yeah. I actually ran a website, like, Save John Tickle, because he was being bullied at the time. And I think I went on the Big Breakfast to, like, to like I got up at, like, 5 o'clock in the morning to go to the Big Breakfast house. And basically, it was, like, live, like, on telly as, like, a 16-year-old being like, yay, I love John Tickle. Right? So I'd always <laughs> had a soft spot for Big Brother. And I'd always kind of been intrigued. I suppose, like, the narcissistic side of me was, like, I always wonder what I'd be like on it. Like, you know, when you watch Big Brother, you always expect that you're always going to be the one that's will beat Big Brother. Do you know what I mean? Like you always you always think you're going to be cleverer than them and you're going to be able to play tricks on the housemates and you're going to outwit Big Brother. And, you know, like, you know, the house won't win this time, you know, in a kind of talking about L.A. kind of Las Vegas kind of vibe. And I basically... Um, there was a web... There was a, basically, there was a series called Big, uh, Big Brother Celebrity Hijack, which was a kind of offshoot from the Celebrity Big Brother that had happened the year before with Jade Goody and Shil Bichetti. So obviously that was like a huge controversy yeah. that, you know, like was, you know, in 2008 was just, you know, was was all over the press. And I think to avoid any more bad press, they decided they were going to do another Celebrity version, but they were going to take it to E4, there's, you know, Channel 4 Sister Station. Yeah, Sister Station. And they were going to basically have this Big Brother then each week would be, or each day would be a different celebrity. Um, and they basically would like take control. They set their own tasks, make rules, talk to the housemates in the diary room, that kind of stuff. And out of the blue, I get this call from Endemol, who make Big Brother, and they're like, "Oh, um, would you be interested in being on this?" And like the kind of teenager in me went, "Oh my God, Ron, you've always wanted to do Big Brother. This is going to be amazing." And obviously, it wasn't proper Big Brother, so it wasn't like you know six weeks in a house or whatever, however long it is. And it wasn't Celebrity Big Brother because obviously I wasn't famous. So it was like a kind of middle ground. And I mean, the type of people that they had on there, like everyone had a special talent. So they had like um, Anthony Gogo, who won bronze at the Olympics. He was on there. Yeah, the boxer, right? Yeah, the boxer. Yeah. You know, and they wanted me, although I can't play any instruments, they, apart from the tambourine, if you class that as a, a essential uh, instrument. Apart from that, they wanted me to be the talented musician, which kind of makes me want to gag when I tell you that. I mean, it's like, oh, God. But um, I've just been dumped. And in my head, I thought if she saw me on Big Brother and saw me, like, having a laugh, being me, kind of, you know, she would miss me and see what she was missing and we'd get back together and reconcile. 
Now, in reality, I think she would have been mortified, absolutely humiliated, embarrassed, like beyond belief, and probably would never have spoken to me again. Right. But that kind of silly arrogance of youth kind of allowed me to kind of get to that point of agreeing to talk about going on Big Brother. Right. Um, so they screened, uh, they filmed a screen test of me. Right. And kept on interviews and meetings with producers. And it's a really rigorous process doing Big Brother. Um, if you're going to go on Big Brother, they have to basically check you're not going to kill anyone. Right. So you've got to do stuff like you've got to go for psychological exams. You've got to go for brain scans. I went to like this hospital in St. John's Wood and they actually made me go for a brain scan, which was just absolutely insane. Do you know what I mean? Like, A, a it was a private hospital, which I'd never been to. And B, like, they gave me a DVD with my brain on. Right? Just <laughs> absolutely insane. And, <laughs> right? And you're sworn to secrecy, so you can't tell anyone. So you can't tell your family, you can't tell your friends, and you definitely can't tell your bandmates. Right. And, you know, when you're in a band, you're, you know, it's, when you're in a band, it is like living with your family. It's an extended family. It's your formative years. So when you kind of stop being in a band, you kind of you feel like you've had you know, the life sucked out of you because you don't really know what to do apart from rely on another group of people that, you know, you kind of you eat with, you sleep with, you, you know, you live with, you know, you, you're, you're broke with, you're rich with, you know, this kind of stuff. And obviously I had to completely keep it under wraps. But then things obviously start clues started to kind of appear. Um, but at the same time, you know, the show was, was fast approaching to come on there. I think it was a January airing, maybe. And they sent me the contract, which I just thought was a really interesting thing to kind of share with your listeners. Because obviously, we, you know, there have been quite a few indie stars that have been on Big Brother. You know, obviously, Preston and Donnie from the Towers of London and stuff. And I imagine this is the same for them. And I imagine it's, I think I've heard this from people that I've met who have been on X Factor and from places like that. So if you do a reality TV show, you sign the contract, and if you get any any record deal or anything from it, they are entitled to fifty percent of your earnings. Oh wow! So if you're, so if you, you know, so if I, I, I don't know if this happened to Preston, but I, I can imagine that we would have definitely we, you know, if we had got a record deal from that, and the more entitled for one year to have. 50% and that's not just record deals that's any any money that you earn off the back of that so off the so if any any notoriety or any publicity or whatever that we had got because of the program they're entitled to and this is endemol you know they're a big fucking company so it, yeah. we're not going to be able to argue and say oh well actually we were you know we had this fan base before whatever you know you know so <laughs> that was should have really kind of set up warning signs in my head to say right do you know what actually this is not a good look for us but the teenager in me and like a kind of forlorn, heartbroken, you know, little Ron thought, yeah, but she'll, she'll want me back if she sees me like this and I'll get to watch <laughs> myself back on telly. Right? So, um, so, I, and another thing as well, which was quite interesting from the contract is that you get paid per day to be on the show. Like you legally have to be paid. So you pay 60 pounds a day to be on Big Brother. So I suppose if you're in the show for a week, that's like six times seven, which I'm not very good at maths, but you know, so, you know, in a week and if you're in there for, you know, a couple of, couple of weeks, you know, it's good. Obviously if you win it, you get 50 grand. So that was obviously another inspiration was like 50 grand, you know, how many packs of Haribo can I buy with that? All right. So <laughs> that was all that, you know, that was all kind of pushing me there. So I got as far as recording my introduction video, you know, like, Hey, I'm Ronnie and I'm a musician, right. You know, <laughs> And again, I'd love to fucking watch it because it must be so cringy. I remember they asked and said, tell us one thing that your family don't know about you. 
I don't think I was talking about getting wanked off by someone, right? Like it was a fucking, oh. I mean, really, like just. And the thing is, they wanted it to be because obviously it was the celebrity hijack, so they wanted it to be cruel and they wanted it to be naughty, but they didn't want it to be Shilpa Popadom bad. Do you know what I mean? So they didn't want it to be like they didn't want it to be, you know, front page of the Sun, but at the same time they wanted teenagers to tune in and watch it so you wanted to be a bit scandalous and i suppose i was scandalous enough at that age <laughs> to fill that quota um so they came to film us rehearse and i had to kind of make a little white lie about why they were coming to film us and considering we just started as a band my drama band who was in littlers with me was a little bit kind of more savvy and he was like well, why the fuck do they want to like you know like this professional film company want to come and film us and i can't remember what the excuse was but then they said well look we need to film you playing live and we were We'd gone back over to the other dark side and we blagged a gig supporting Pete Doherty at the Ribbon Factory, right? Who again was at, you know, the height of his fame, 2008, you know, he's still on the front pages of newspapers and enemy and, you know, he's still a godlike genius and whatever, um, as the enemy would call him. And my bandmates started to really wonder why we were backstage at the Ribbon Factory and Endemol were just filming me. <laughs> so you've got Pete Doherty <laughs> in the corner of the Ribbon Factory, which is like the dressing room is basically one big, back room like the, the like there's no you know there's no like segregation it's basically like it's like a second bar that they're just basically blocked out to the public and everyone's just in there and everyone's going why the fuck are they not filming pete you know like pete's you know just swallowing around or whatever but they love running and my bandmate was like hmm endemol that's big brother isn't it are you doing fucking big brother are you are you fucking doing big brother fuck ronnie are you doing fucking big brother <laughs> it's like uh no because <laughs> I still wanted to do it you know like I still wanted to be on it and they kind of sat me down a couple of days later and they just said look man like this is this is not the band you know like this is not what we're going to be doing and if you want to go and do Big Brother then we can break the band up and we'll go our separate ways but we don't want to be represented on a reality a reality tv show you know and we've been asked to be on this t4 battle of the bands thing to get a gig at v festival and they said no to that as well and mm. You know, just some of my bandmates were just really, really um, against reality TV. And I suppose at the time, reality TV was Heat magazine. And it was like, you know, a big, big thing, wasn't it? Reality, you know, reality TV was basically, as much as indie was the big story of the noughties, I suppose reality TV was the birth of them as well, wasn't it? You know, and it was yeah, yeah. had a little bit more innocence than perhaps now Love Island and, you know, the big corporate kind of side of it. So I obviously turned, turned it down and said, no, you know, the bands are more important and I'm going to follow my musical dreams. Uh, um, <laughs> and I'm really glad I did for two reasons. One, yeah. because I wouldn't have wanted to be known as Ronnie from Big Brother. <laughs> I'm not sure you'd have me on your podcast if I was Ronnie from Big Brother. So <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think my street credit would have been any higher. But as well, because of the circles that I existed in in London, I knew all the fucking celebs. So all the celebs that they chose, like Keith Lemon and Matt Horn from Gavin and Stacey and Peaches Geldof and all those people, they would have fucking crucified me. Do you mean imagine <laughs> them having little fucking Ronnie in fucking well not even little Ronnie? Do you mean having Ronnie and they're allowed to do anything they want? You know, because the whole point about Celebrity Big Brother was like people like Russell Brand and Matt Lucas were allowed to pull as many pranks, were allowed to do whatever they wanted to be as mean and as devilish as possible. Just imagine the shit I would have got from them. <laughs> they would have played with me and they would have I mean maybe I would have won just for that reason right there's my ego kicking in again but it was that whole thing and yeah I'm just it's 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 mad to relive that because it was a never was you know what could it have been you know yeah. maybe that show I did watch it and I did think it was absolute dog shit 
but <laughs> maybe if I'd been on it, would it have been the best series ever? Do you know what I mean like you know, maybe. or would it have been absolutely, <laughs> would it have been absolutely horrendous and embarrassing, and would it have actually been the death of me? And would I be too ashamed to even think about going on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, Ronnie. As you said, you have got some brilliant stories. It's been good fun hearing them uh, this afternoon, this evening. What time is it? Um, <laughs> whatever time of day it is. You meet me in the afternoon and then it's like four o'clock. <laughs> That's and it. It's all this like talk of afternoon drinking and then end up on people's sofas <laughs> at 6am. Um, so the encore, uh, Ronnie, three quick fire questions that just to wrap things up. Um, now, Pete collaborated with the Littlands on their way, obviously, as we spoke about at the start. Uh, what Baby Shambles song do you wish that you were involved with? Oh, wow, that's a great story. Uh, great you could question. be shaking your tambourine and dancing in the music video. The man who came to stay. The man who came to stay because it has yeah. that amazing intro, like... Do, yeah. do. It sounds like a game show now. That's a massively underrated song, that one. Yeah, because the way that they used to play it was like, I mean, because Patrick, who was a guitarist, like he was just, I mean, he was just so fucking talented and he would just shred this guitar and literally just, and then, you know, add him on drums and it was just, it was just the whole pace. And then the fact is that you had this amazing atmosphere and kind of energy in the room anyway. You know, because you know, it was it was a spectacle. It was it was a it was a theatrical performance almost. You know, watching Baby Shambles. You know, because you didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, Pete was being this volatile live wire, and then you had Pat who was like smacked out of his head, and you know, Adam kind of you know holding it together on, on you know, and then you had you know Drew bouncing around the place, and it was just it's just this amazing collection of people. But then the the energy, and in, in especially like being on the side of the stage, looking out into the sea of fans everybody losing their shit and the man who came to stay wasn't particularly one of the biggest songs but the energy when they played it because of the drums and the bass and the rhythm that would have been fucking brilliant to be on stage playing tambourine to that yeah love that definitely song. yeah yeah good shout uh next up on the encore ronnie uh the best gig best littlands gig that you were a part of uh we played in new york we supported the horrors in new york oh. um and we moved to New York um, and lived over there for a bit and um, support the horrors. And they had just released their debut album, which was fucking brilliant. You know, like this amazing yeah. garage rock album and just, and Farris would kind of, he'd come on stage with black hand paint and basically just run into the audience and just smash people in the face <laughs> with, with black hand paint. And you finish gigs, I don't know if you remember, but you'd, you'd, you'd watch people leave gigs with just like black face paint all over them. Like it was amazing. It, it, it just, and the whole performance and just everything, but we supported them. And because it was their first gig in New York and America as well, or maybe not in America, but definitely in, in New York, there was a big excitement for both of us because we were the kind of cool fashion band. We were playing at Miss Shapes, who were like the kind of the cool fashionistas of New York. And it all just kind of came together. Um, I remember the singer from The Bravery asked to come and we said he couldn't. And just finally, uh, Ronnie, what's the your favourite DJ set or DJ gig that you did? Uh, I mean, very lucky to teach at a lot of festivals. Um, and it was definitely, uh, so basically Reading Festival, Maccabees played the NME stage. Um, and I think they headlined the NME stage. It was like the first time they headlined the NME stage. At that point, I was hanging around with them and knocking around with them. So it was like, you know, great seeing my mates do it. But obviously at the same time, fucking Maccabees, like what a fucking band. Um, and then I was DJing afterwards in the VIP guest area. And I remember playing from like 12 till 3. I just remember the entire tent was just swarming full of people just like round. And the best thing about DJ at festivals is when you see your mates, it's like, you know, when you see your mates having the best time, because you get a massive buzz from that, you know, not just the kind of 
the buzz of playing at a festival and, and being lucky enough to do that but actually see your mates like having the fucking best time of their lives and you're soundtracking it for me that's like something that i really hope i can still do in the future nice yeah yeah really really hope so uh we do desperately need to get back to that live music and, and dj times sooner rather than later if possible but um but ronnie we've run out of time thank you so much for, for joining us tonight you've been uh, fabulous at re- recounting all these stories of back in the day and painting a beautiful scene uh, a beautiful picture of the indie scene at that time so much appreciated thank you for having me lads good to meet you both see you soon